Good morning, Redeemer. All right. Top of the morning to you. <laughs> or is it afternoon yet? No, not quite. It's afternoon for me. You know, I'm still on Eastern time. I got in it. I don't, has anybody had this experience? When I picked up uh, a rent a car at the, at the airport, they uh, gave me a car and the license tag had expired. So... <laughs> You know, I wanted to get to bed real quick. I was tired, you know, so I took it back. It took 45 minutes for them to give me another car, and that car had the registration expire. <clears throat> so, uh, what do you think? I, what, 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 what kind of a pound of flesh should I try to squeeze some hurts now? You know, I got in at like a two two thirty five this morning. You know, so, but fortunately I'm on Eastern time, so it's only one thirty five. You know, <clears throat> okay. So I'm open to suggestions as to maybe they should give me a week's free rental or something like that. All right. Uh, also, um, my wife got me into Twitter. So if anybody is into Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter, just at Carl Ellis Jr. Okay. So that's just a little something. And feel free to tweet while I'm preaching. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've become a a tweeter. <laughs> Oh, hallelujah. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, it's an honor to be here. It's my first time in Waco. I shared this morning that uh, the only thing, only time I had ever seen Waco was on TV about about a decade ago, and you know what that was all about. And uh, <clears throat> so, anyway, it's good to see it for myself. So now I'm going to go back and say, this is a nice town, okay? Uh, all right. Um, I want to call your attention to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, um, Acts chapter 2 starting with verse 42. Uh, we're going to look at two passages, one in Acts 2 and the other one in Acts chapter 6. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke breads in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. And now we go to Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. And I, I, I used to say, uh, when you get there, say amen, but people with iPads would, would say amen first, you know. I, <laughs> I do my iPhone thing too, you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I, uh, well, I got the iPod, then I got the, 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 the MacBook, and then Finally got the iPhone. I thought I had the Trinity, and then they come up with the iPad. So I gotta, I gotta go for the Quatney now. Okay. Acts chapter six, verse one. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being left or were overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, "It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables." Brothers, choose 
seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men, these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of the Lord spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We're looking at a church on special grace this morning. A church on special grace. And um, we look at this early church in Jerusalem. Their light was shining very brightly, wasn't it? Uh, because they operated on special grace. I, I do believe that God has designed us to operate on special grace and not just common grace. I mean, everybody operates on common grace, but God has called us to operate on special grace. It's kind of like it's, it's regular, I mean, it's super unleaded grace. That's what God has designed us to operate on. But we too often are satisfied with operating on regular leaded grace, you know. And, you know, you can put regular leaded gas in a car that's designed for super unleaded. It will run, but it won't run very well, will it? And I think that's what we need to be. If we're talking about uh, branching off into things like urban ministry or missions or whatever, if you're really talking about being the church of God, then you have to operate on special grace. Um, A church that operates on special grace does not let human limitations become the church's limitations. A church that operates on special grace uh, is, is not intimidated uh, by, the, by the bluffing of the sinful world. And you can tell a church that gets intimidated sometimes when you hear all the time things like, well, we've never done it this way before. So what else is new? <laughs> or uh, what will the people say if we do this or that? Uh, you see, the church, the gates of hell will never prevail against a church that operates on, uh, that runs on special grace. Uh, too often, I think we, we see a crisis of faith in our own country uh, because I think too many of us in the church, in the Bible-believing church at least, run on common grace. Uh, sometimes we might even know that there's something wrong, but then too, in too many cases, we go on as if everything is normal. But that's not the way God has called us. God has called us to operate on special grace. Yeah, you know, you you know, anytime you think about doing something like urban ministry or whatever, you're thinking about that. You're you're, you're depending on God to operate on on special grace. And so here, as we look at this passage, we are reminded that we need to recultivate our taste for special grace. In other words, we need to be a church. If we are operating that way, we need to be a church with many wonders. Now, okay, some people believe that miracles don't happen today. Some believe that they do. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's a matter of a technical thing. A miracle is something that's extraordinary that God does. Now, a miracle in the technical sense is something that extra, extraordinary that God does with his own finger. But an extraordinary act of God by way of special providence is something that God does that's out of the ordinary, but he not, it's not a direct thing. Uh, I've seen both of those. I've seen uh, special providence in my life. But that's a wonder. It's a wonder to see someone 
be transformed by the power of the word and the power of the spirit that's a wonder it's a wonder when you see a group of people begin to have the courage to stand up against uh, the sins uh, of society and to not mind suffering persecution for it Uh, miracles in this technical sense happen in a time of revelation well revelation isn't happening today but illumination is and God still is in the business of doing great things I'm not saying that we have to have spectacular things happen every day. I shared this morning about a lady that I know who was talking about all these great experiences she's had with God, all this this and that and the other, sees visions and all, here's God speak to her every day, three times a day and all the rest of that. And I kept hearing this and I wondered, hmm, did the Bible characters experience that? And I thought of a person like, Daniel. Uh, you know, the book of Daniel covers 75 years, his 75 year career in Babylon. He came when he was 15. And the last thing we hear from Daniel, he's about 90. Uh, he, came to, he came to Babylon, of course, given a full scholarship to UBAB. <laughs> and you see his career begin with a, with a controversy about his meal ticket. <clears throat> And then a few other things, and he becomes uh, he becomes uh, the head of the National Council of Wise Men, you know, an interdenominational group of soothsayers and astrologers and all the rest of that. But you see him in in Babylon, and you see some spectacular things happen. But think about it: seventy-five years is twenty-six thousand three hundred seventy-five days. The whole book of Daniel including the three weeks when Daniel was praying and didn't get an answer because the angel was stuck in a traffic jam, remember? You know, the Prince of Persia Expressway, you know. Okay, if you take the whole book of Daniel and look at the days that it covers of his life, it only covers about 51 days of the 26,375 days. And so all those other days were just ordinary days. So when I talk about we need to be a church that has wonders. I'm not saying that we have, it has to be spectacular all the time because God works in all kinds of ways, doesn't he? So if we run on special grace, we should expect to see wonders. We need uh, to be a church that inspires the whole community to be filled with awe. In this passage, the people who were filled with awe were not just those in the church But it was the people in Jerusalem. All the people in Jerusalem were filled with awe as they watched these people behave the way they did. Uh, And uh, remember, uh, you know, the people uh, in in the church acted differently. First of all, they shared what they had in spiritual unity. They were probably under economic sanctions because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And thus they were not allowed to participate in many of the traditional Jewish institutions, uh, economic institutions. Uh, today these sanctions would, would, would be things like um, uh, being denied credit or having uh, your Social Security benefits cut off or, or being denied access to health insurance or, or forced unemployment. You know, there are Christians today who suffer that. Uh, if you were in Pakistan and you, you were a, a, a teacher, let's say, and you became a Christian, you'd be forced in, into unemployment and the best you can do is, st- is sweep streets. And that's the kind of thing that the Christians were going under uh, in uh, Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem church voluntarily redistributed, re- redistributed their resources according to need. 
Now, this wasn't a forced thing, you know. This wasn't redistribution of wealth, you know, I mean, all that. It was, it was not communism, all right? It was voluntary. But by that, the wealthy members were set free from the temptation of selfishness, and the poor members of the church were set free from the temptation of envy. They affirmed the oneness of the body when they met in a large group in the temple. But not only did they meet in a large group, but they also had close fellowship in, in, uh, in, in cultural diversity. So they had oneness in, 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 in spiritual unity, but they had closeness in cultural diversity. They shared meals in the homes. And some of these small groups could well have been language groups, because you remember, people, the people in Jerusalem, uh, these people had come from all over the place, all right? And so sometimes they would have uh, small groups uh, in different languages. Uh, they had glad and humble hearts. And they gathered in the spirit of praise. Now, because they ran on special grace, they gained the respect of the whole city. Uh, remember, this is the same city just a few weeks earlier that had crucified and hated Jesus. But now they gained their respect. They crucified Christ, and now they were in, in great respect of the body of Christ. That's a remarkable turnaround. They grew because God was working in the hearts of the people. Because they ran on special grace... The church of Jerusalem finally fulfilled the purpose that God's purpose for Israel. Uh, they were to, Israel was to glorify God through knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. In the area of knowledge, they knew what God wanted them to believe, and that is that Jesus is Lord. They not only believed it, but they acted upon it. In the area of holiness, they desired what God desired. And what did God desire? To see the whole earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In the area of righteousness, they implemented principles of the kingdom of God, including social justice. Oop, 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 oop. I just felt the atmosphere change. Okay, now I'm not talking about social justice in the way these crazy people do. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me, let me, uh, this morning I broke it down in terms of a foot race. There's two kinds of social justice, one that's valid and one that's not valid. <clears throat> Let's think about a foot race. Historic social justice goes like this. It ensures that all the run- it tries to see that all the runners have equal access to preparation, okay? It also ensures that all the runners start at the same line, at the same point, at the same time, okay? And also social justice says that the results of the race will be honest, that there will be honest officiating and all the rest of that, okay? You got that? So the gun goes off, the race is joined, some come, some come in ahead of others, right? Historic social justice cannot guarantee the outcome, but it makes sure that the outcome is fair. Is that all right? Even Glenn Beck agrees with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd throw out some... some uh, <laughs> okay, praise God, okay? Now, here's... <laughs> Now, here's the bad kind of social justice, going back to the foot race. The bad kind of social justice goes like this. They don't care about preparation. They don't care how far people are away from the start line. All they want is for everybody to finish the race at the same time. So some who run faster, they'll do what they can to slow them down, to hold them back. Those who run slower, they'll do what they can to push them forward. But they want everybody to finish at the same time. 
This crazy kind of social justice is the kind that would give everybody a trophy for just showing up for the race. And of course, you know what you do with that. That, that creates a great sense of, of entitlement. I remember I taught a college uh, class uh, in uh, Chattanooga not too long ago. <clears throat> and the, these students turned in these papers. And some were very good. I gave them A's. And some were terrible. And I had mercy on them and I gave them C's. And do you know the students were out, irate at me? The ones who got C's, why didn't you give me an A? I said, because it wasn't A work, but I turned it in. <clears throat> raised on that bad kind of social justice. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the social justice that the Bible talks about. So the implemented principles of social justice, equal opportunity, not necessarily equal outcomes. And they also had compassion for the poor. And you know, that's, that's, that's throughout the scripture. In other words, they loved each other. That was the bottom line. And they knew that they were the, these were the last days, and they lived like it. They lived like it. Oh, by the way, if you ever, you know, Jesus says he doesn't know, didn't, doesn't know the hour nor the, the day that he's going to return, right? Uh, well, I used to know that, but no, no, I used to didn't know that back in my early days, and, uh, but I knew the week. And now I lost that, but now I got the actual, I, I, I can tell you the exact moment when Jesus is going to return. I can tell you that right now. You ready? When you least expect it. Okay. Okay. Praise the Lord. Okay. So, so there it was. Here was a church running on special grace. And things are running smoothly. But like if you've flown anywhere, you know that things will be going just nice. But what do they tell you? To keep your what? Seatbelt fastened. Why? Because you might encounter t- unexpected turbulence. So when a church runs on special grace, don't expect everything to be smooth all the time. You're going to get some turbulence. And that's where we come to Acts chapter 6. A problem, a problem emerged. Now, it says in Acts chapter 6 that the number of, of, of disciples was increasing. But a problem didn't uh, didn't occur just because the number of disciples was increasing. It came because the growth of the church was cutting across lines, cultural lines of tension, suspicion, and alienation. Now, you know, there are churches that I'm aware of that don't want to do that. They don't want to grow because they don't want to be controversial. Well, I don't know about them, but I, I'd rather be controversial. If, it's, if, it, if, if that's what I have to be to, to, uh, to obey God. Most of the Hebrew Jews there were native born to Jerusalem or Judea. And they were oriented towards Hebrew culture and tradition. Most of the Greek Jews were born overseas. Today you would call them immigrants. They were not oriented towards Hebrew culture and tradition. And they were under suspicion because of their lack of Hebrew cultural roots. And so therefore, they tended to be second-class Jews. Now the Hebrew Jews considered it beneath them to associate with Greek Jews, much less Gentiles. And therefore, the synagogues reflected this attitude. If you read in in Acts chapter... um, or later on in Acts chapter 6 where it says uh, that some people complained against Stephen because they were from the synagogue of the freedmen. 
it had Greeks in it, you know. So some 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 synagogues were were predominantly Greek and some were predominantly Hebrew. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, anyway, so that's the way they were, and the temple itself was built on a pattern of separation. Uh, the outer court was for the Greeks and the animals. The middle court was for the Jewish women, and the inner court was for the Jewish men only. Now. The question is, why did the Hebrew Jews, why were they not anxious to associate with Greek Jews? It goes back to history and a misunderstanding of it. First of all, when the Canaanites, the Canaanites back in the days before the conquest, the Canaanites were into idol worship and Satan worship. And as a result, their, 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 their culture was saturated with filthy and disgusting practices. And perversions of every kind. Perversion. Sexual perversion was the basis of their religious worship. They took, they took church growth seriously. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay. <laughs> they not only did that, but they burned their newborn babies on pagan altars. So when the children of Israel conquered the land of Canaan, they would have considered themselves set apart by God. For a special purpose. And that purpose was to be an instrument of judgment, God's instrument of judgment upon the Canaanites. And therefore they were not to associate with the Canaanites in any way unless they repented. And unless they kept the covenant. Now after the Canaanites were conquered, the Israelites were to then fling the doors open and invite the nations to come in and keep the covenant. That's why Isaiah says, he says, in the last days, this temple will be known as a house of prayer for all nations. Israel was supposed to become an international body of people who had one thing in common, that was keeping the covenant. But the Jews wrongly extended the Canaanite quarantine to all non-Jews. And so by the first century, even the Greek Jews were considered to be unclean by many Hebrew Jews even if they adopted Hebrew culture. They were still second class. And because the Holy Spirit burned through all this hostility and foolishness, the church led the way in canceling the effects of the cultural arrogance that had built up among the Hebrew Jews. The Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews enjoyed equality in Christ and mutual fellowship in Christ. And that itself was controversial. But this created a challenge for the church. The Hebrew Jews were of the dominant culture. The Greek Jews were of the subdominant culture. And when we talk about crossing cultures, basically there are basic two two kind of cultures out there, dominant and subdominant. I don't care how you slice the cake, whether you do it ethnically, whether you do it linguistically or geographically or whatever. All of us belong to a dozen or so uh, different cultures. Some are dominant, some are subdominant. All right, I'm in a subdominant culture ethnically, but I'm in a dominant culture linguistically in America. All right. And anybody in the dominant culture is not aware of the fact that they're in a culture. I understand this. You know, I don't think I speak with an accent until I go to England or South Africa somewhere. And all of a sudden I realize I have an accent. Okay. Uh, That's just the way it is. People in the dominant culture are not aware of the culture. But people in the subdominant culture, because they're hit with the dominant culture all the time, they are aware of it. 
So when you think about mercy ministry, urban ministry, that kind of thing, if you're not from the hood, just know that it's a different culture. Um, And so this had an effect on the way the church functioned. They have been taking care of widows in the church, but the dominant cultural leadership of the church tended to be insensitive to the needs of the subdominant cultural widows. Now, for many years, Jerusalem had an effective food distribution uh, program for the poor. And with the dramatic growth of the church, uh, there was a disproportionate increase in the number of Greek widows in need. Many of them had moved to Jerusalem in their latter years to be buried nearby. And they had close relatives, but they had no close relatives to care for them, as did the native Jerusalemites. So when these widows became Christians, the Jewish distribution system was no longer available to them. And as a result, they were completely vulnerable. Therefore, the church then developed its own distribution system patterned after the existing Jewish distribution system. But because of the shortcomings of the Jewish distribution system, the church distribution system reflected the same shortcomings. It was Greek unfriendly. And therefore the Greeks were shortchanged. The large group meetings where the food distribution took place, took place in the temple where it had that separation pattern. And so the Jewish widows would get first dibs on all the food and the Greek widows would get the leftovers. And therefore a dispute broke out between the Jewish and Greek widows. Now, the distribution issue was, the, was only the tip of the iceberg when it came to differences within the church between the Hebrews and the Greeks. They had real differences in outlook, in political persuasion, in cultural pra- uh, priorities, and in aesthetic values. You know, one group, I think I said it this morning, one group uh, would clap on two and four, and the other group would clap on one and three. Oh boy, that's a terrible obstacle to overcome, isn't it? and so there were real differences but they all belong to christ you know and i see this all the time people it it depends on your perspective i mean i i uh, i agree with the i agree with some like when it comes to the liberals and the conservatives this is this is a crazy thing i i I get invited to uh uh left-wing groups and right-wing groups and i pretty much say the same thing and everybody says oh i like that (laughs) go figure you know (laughs) And I'm not either one of them because I can't, I can't agree. I'm, I follow Jesus. I can't agree with either conservatism or liberalism all the way. I agree with some things on the conservatives. I agree with some things on the liberals. But I can't go all the way because there are aspects of both of those belief systems that are, that are anti-biblical, which I can't go along with. My allegiance is to Jesus. But the fact that some of the meetings were in Greek, some of the small groupings were in Greek, uh, also aggravated uh, the growing suspicion and, and, and tension. And so they had to do something about it. This was understandable. I mean, you know, if, uh, if, if, if one group was being neglected because of a flaw in the system, I don't think that the apostles or anybody like that, they, I don't think they were deliberately doing that. They were just following procedures. They were just going along with the system. But the system was flawed. And so the amazing thing here is that the apostles did not just ignore the problem. They did not just point the accusing finger. 
Instead, they realized their limitations because of their Hebrew background. And they admitted that they couldn't do everything. We can't minister the word and, and, and wait on these tables too. They realized that they were also insensitive to the situation of the Greek widows and the, and, 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 and the particular needs of the Greek widows. And so they were, they were, they were bold enough to propose a bold solution. Why? Because they ran on special grace. They weren't afraid to think out of the box. Whatever you do, Redeemer, don't allow yourself to be confined to a box. They decided to turn the management of the distribution system over to those who knew how to get the kinks out of the system. They gave guidelines, of course, for the selection of seven helpers or seven deacons. They had to be men full of the Holy Spirit with the courage to, to break with the flawed protocols and conventions of the day. They had to be men full of wisdom with a real understanding of the, spiritual, of the structural patterns that negative, negatively affected the Greeks. So as a result, they chose seven deacons. And the remarkable thing about that, and this is, Francis Schaeffer pointed this out to me many years ago when I studied under him, and I didn't even know this. But all seven of those deacons were Greeks because they understood the problems better than anybody else. Now, how do I know they were Greeks? Because they all had Greek names. They all had Greek names. So, for the church in Jerusalem, it was not just enough to say there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. But they instituted a bold plan of mercy ministry to make that a reality. They sought to understand the plight of the Greek widows, and they solved the problem by putting Greeks in charge of all of the widows. Now, when you think about mercy ministry, a lot of times people go awry, and people don't understand that they hurt in the name of helping. First of all, in today's context, uh, in many cases, uh, uh, poverty is not just a function of economics. Poverty is also a function of culture. Not in every case, but in a lot of cases. And so if you're going to do mercy ministry, then my strong suggestion is to really try to understand the culture of poverty. Uh, take an anthropological approach to this thing. Uh, tonight uh, at the thing, I'm going to show, share with you some of the, some of the characteristics that I have, I have observed. Because a lot of times, um, government, uh, government assistance has done more harm than good. Uh, if, 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 if I operate on a, what I would call an achiever value system, and I create, well, this is what happened. The welfare programs were, were set up by those who, had, who were operating on an achiever value system. But the people who were supposed to be the beneficiaries were non-achievers. It's a whole different value system. And so what would happen is, it's kind of like you see, a, you see a, uh, uh, a fire, right? And you assume it to be a wood fire. So what do you do? You throw water on it, and it puts it out. But in this case, what you're looking at is a grease fire. And what happens when you throw water on a grease fire? It flares up. By the way, I have a, a, a keynote uh, presentation that even shows that. If you want to see it tonight, I'll be glad to show it to you. All right. So it flares up. All right. 
And so, and, and so in many cases, what has happened is that a lot of the government assistance programs have made poverty worse. Well-meaning, but why did it make it worse? It's because they didn't understand the culture of poverty. If you understand the culture of poverty and learn how to think the way that works, then you can, you can design a, a program or a ministry that actually does help. You know, I'm not saying let's not do that, but let's, 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 let's think, think it through. Another thing is that when we talk about, uh, a, a lot of times we, 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 we are reluctant because we think about church history in, in the last 150 years. The beginning of the 20th century, the, the church was embroiled in the battle for the Bible. Some of you who know your church history, you know about that. One group says, we're going to do evangelism. No, we're going to do evangelism without social action. Without practical application. Others say, we're going to do practical application without evangelism. And so they separated. Guess who won? Guess who lost? Both sides lost the battle. Because God never intended for evangelism to be separate from practical application. But the reason that those things have an oil and water relationship it's because there's some stuff that goes in between that bonds the two together. And we've forgotten about that. And that's, that's, what, that's what I call discipleship. Now, discipleship does not just start when one gets converted. Discipleship starts when you first start discipling somebody, when you first encounter somebody. And then you bring them along. A hundred years ago, the average person in the street could tell you what the gospel was. But today they can't tell you. You have, to, you have to disciple somebody to the point where they can finally understand the gospel. And so that's the process, pre-conversion discipleship. You've got to do that. So as you, as you, you know, what do we do so many times in mercy ministry? We'll give somebody a meal and then say, now accept Jesus. No, it doesn't, it, it's, it's too much of a leap. They may not know anything about Jesus. I remember when I was in campus ministry, there was this girl we were trying to get to accept Christ, and she was praying to receive Christ, and nothing seemed to happen. She eventually did become a Christian after hanging out with us for a while. And she came to me, she said, you know what? She says, back in those days, I was trying to receive Jesus, and I didn't even know if God existed. All right. But what had happened is she'd hung out in, in by, by osmosis, I guess she was a disciple. We didn't know what we were doing back then. But that's what you got to do. You got to do. So the, so, so the thing that bonds these two things together is, number one, what I call uh, 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 consciousness seeding. You, you got you to put little nuggets of truth, of biblical truth, into the person's consciousness or into the culture's consciousness. You got to do that. Little nuggets here, no, little nuggets there, little nuggets there. Next thing you got to do is you got to take those nuggets and connect the dots and connect them. And when you connect them, you begin to help them to see how this leads to that, leads to this, leads to that, leads to the fact that Jesus is Lord and you are in trouble. Jesus did this himself by all the parables he told. People were fascinated by his parables. And it planted seed in people. Somehow we don't seem to do that. But when we do mercy ministry, it's got to be about that. Uh, I think of a, a young man, I shared this story this morning. Think of a young man I met in Baltimore who was a gangbanger. And he found out that I was in the ministry. And he just came up to me and got all up in my face and said, 
I don't want to have anything to do with your God. I said, why? He says, because God doesn't understand gangbangers. I said, oh, interesting. So, <clears throat> I, uh, now here's where knowledge of the Bible comes in handy. All right? Study your Bibles, y'all. There's a lot of good stuff up in there, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I said, uh, you know, and you know the narratives, the narratives, the stories, you know? By the way, the stories have historicity. You know, I do believe the Bible, all right? Uh, but I thought of some, somebody like him, and, and I came upon Jephthah. Remember Jephthah? So I told him, I says, well, what if I were to show you a gangbanger in the Bible that God uh, used? Would you then believe that God understands you and cares about gangbangers? He said, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. He's, I, said, I said, would you then study the Bible with me? Yeah, I'd do that any day, man. You show me that. And you ain't going to show me. You're not going to show me anything like that. I said, okay. So open, open to Judges 11, Jephthah. Now, um, Jephthah's father was a man named, anybody know? Gilead. And the Gilead family lived in the land of Gilead. <laughs> so what does that tell you about his family? Anytime the region you live in is named after your family, you got to be a big shot, right? All right. Now, in the words of, uh, well, so Gilead had several sons. Uh, but in the words of Kenny Rogers, Gilead would attempt uh, occasionally take his love to town, if you know what I mean, okay? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> oh, Gilead, don't take your love to town. Okay. <laughs> and so um, the result of his numerous dalliances produced who? Jephthah. So Jephthah tried to identify with his family and, and come back. And, and of course, his half-brothers despised him, and they exiled him. And uh, so he was just out there. And the English Bible says that soon he was joined by other adventurers. And I got to thinking, I said, you know, some about that don't sound right. You know? <laughs> now, here's another thing. If you get a chance to study the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, take it. Okay, so it just so happens my Westminster education came in handy, you know. This was before I met this young man, but I, I looked up the word translated adventure. It's the word rakim. I think it's rakim or whatever. And the word literally means one who is morally bankrupt and reckless. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a thug to me. Okay, so I showed him, I said, yeah, this word kind of means thug. I says, and, and it says, these thugs got together and became a, a, a band of fighting men. What do you call a bunch of thugs who get together and fight? It's a gang. <laughs> I said, so Jephthah was a gangbanger. I said, now look. So I showed them the rest of the story, how God used them in a mighty way, how, how Israel, uh, you know, uh, came to him and his posse, you know, his boys, right? Say, will you fight for us? He said, I ain't going to fight for y'all, you know, but they persuaded him and he, he, and he delivered Israel. And then I asked this young man, I said, look, have you ever wondered why you're a gangbanger? He said, well, I never thought about it. I said, I'll tell you why. I said, it's because God made you a warrior by nature. And God wants you to be his warrior. How would you like to be his warrior? He got interested. 
he got real interested and we began to study the Bible together. It took a while before he came to understand that he was God's enemy in his present state and that he needed Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. It took several weeks as pre-conversion discipleship. But once he found that out, he surrendered to Jesus. Now, if I had asked him, if I didn't understand his culture, and if I had asked him, how would you like to be the bride of Christ? He would have said, oh, man, I ain't into that. You know? <laughs> so, it's, it's, so when you do uh, mercy ministry, it's not just a matter of handing out stuff. But it's a matter of discipleship, too. And that's so important, pre-conversion discipleship. It may be months before people come around to the point where they see uh, what the gospel is. So this is the way it is to run on special grace. And this is the, and if you begin to see this, you will begin to see some, some amazing things. Amazing wonders happen before your eyes. So because of special grace, uh, the church in Jerusalem took seriously both the spiritual and the practical aspects of carrying out ministry. And that's what we must do. Because of special grace, for the sake of the ongoing proclamation of the Word of God, they were prepared to respond to existing needs by adjusting their procedures, altering their organizational structure, and developing new concepts of ministry. Who had ever heard of a deacon before this? This is a whole new concept of ministry. So they were able to develop it. When you go into ministry that you haven't done before or ministry that's outside of your normal sphere, just be prepared to develop new concepts of ministry. Because of special grace, they refused to get into the name-calling and blame game when things went wrong. Instead, they spent their energies in correcting the injustice on prayer and proclamation of the Word of God. Because of special grace, they refused to become paternalistic. That is, they did not think of themselves as the only ones qualified to solve the problem. These, these, uh, these uh, Hebrew leaders said, well, you know, there are others here. There's, there's other gifts in this church that we can utilize. Because of, because of special grace, they didn't do that. Instead, what did they do? They gave the responsibility of solving the problem to those most affected by the problem. And they not only gave them the responsibility, but they gave them the authority. Because of special grace, the word of God continued to spread, and the number of disciples continued to grow. And the religious establishment, the religious establishment was already suspicious of the young church because they preached in the name of Jesus, because they healed in the name of Jesus. Peter and John were even arrested and whipped because of the name of Jesus. They were forbidden to minister in the name of Jesus, yet they continued to proclaim the name of Jesus. Because of special grace. What made matters worse, they had the audacity to bring Greek Jews into the same church with Hebrew Jews. Because in those days, the church was a synagogue, wasn't it? Kind of like a synagogue, right? All right. But because of special grace, they were not afraid because they had special grace. You got that? Because of special grace... They directly defied the flawed traditions of their time in the name of Jesus. They were on a collision course with the religious establishment, but they were not worried 
because they were on special grace. And, and as you know, if you read a little further in, in uh, Acts chapter 6, you will find that Stephen, this wonderful, wise man, full, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, was brutally murdered because he took a stand for Jesus. And it seemed like that was a great tragedy for the church. It seems like, oh boy, our star deacon has been killed. But there was a man who sponsored that, that illegal execution. And that man turned out to be a great champion of the church, namely Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Because of special grace, they continued to boldly proclaim the word of God and courageously practice the word of God. Now, as you think about where you go from here, you should ask yourselves this question. What would it look like for us to be on special grace? Uh, what would we, we be known for? Uh, how will our culture be impacted by our bro, bold proclamation of God's word and our courageous practice of God's word? What controversies will we be accused of stirring up? Because I guarantee you, you will be accused of stirring up controversy. If I can show you the, the, the wounds on my spiritual body, I would probably account probably about 95% of my injuries have been from friendly fire from other Christians. But that's all right. God's in the, in the healing business. And then finally, if you were operating on special grace the way God is calling you to, then how would Jesus be glorified in all of this? Those are great questions. So you think about branching off into other areas of ministry. Just remember the church in Jerusalem and ask God for the grace to be that way. And you will indeed be a church on special grace. May we be that church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you for your calling us out of darkness into this light. Thank you for making us your people by your grace. We ask, Lord, that you will let us live and work and walk in ways that are worthy of you by the righteousness of Jesus, that others may see that we have been with him because of special grace. In Jesus' name, amen.